It's podcasting time. I am Jonathan Isaacson, and this is Dispatches from Just Another Jerk in Japan, or whatever. You know the name. It's on the episode. It's on everything. Subscribe to the podcast in all the normal places. Give the show a rating. Uh, Maybe even write a review if you got a minute. And please remember to share the show with a friend. So this episode is a continuation of the last episode, um, the one where I talked about the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923. That one, last one, was a pretty short one. So go back and have a quick listen. I think it's like 15 minutes or so. Go back, have a quick listen to that one if you haven't listened to it yet. Um, But I'll give you a real, really short version of the story. Um, 1923, September 1st. Uh, a couple minutes before noon, huge earthquake near Yokohama and Tokyo. Lots of shaking and collapsing buildings. Uh, lunchtime meant that cooking fires are lit. Tokyo, Yokohama, basically they burned to the ground. Not completely, but huge sections of the cities burned down. Um, I mean, traditional Japanese houses are made of wood and thatch and the like. Burns easily. So yeah, big uh, earthquake, fires, more than 100,000 people died in the disaster. Okay, got it. Not a fun story, but it is a big part of why Tokyo is what it is today. So I know I also briefly mentioned in that episode, if you go back, listen to the, 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 the one that came out on on the anniversary on September 1st. I know I talked about it, but in the immediate aftermath of the disaster, a major wave of anti-Korean sentiment fueled by some completely, utterly false rumors, it runs rampant through the Japanese capital and Yokohama. And yeah, Japan has some pretty nasty undercurrents of racism, and a lot of times they come bubbling up to the surface. Um, through a lot of history. So let's take a quick look at kind of the general situation in Japan before the earthquake and how the country got to where it was in early, early 1920s. Now, obviously, I'm going to need to make some huge generalizations in the next few minutes, right? Oversimplify some just enormous historical events. Um, You know, going to... Squish them down just a few minutes, you know, of some jerk in Japan's podcast. So, you know, a jerk who isn't even a professional historian, mind you, right? I'm just some jerk who likes history. Um, So those are my caveats, and I am sticking to them. So let's go. About half a century before the earthquake, right? So 1967, Japan begins to open up to the outside world after hundreds of years of isolationism. And like when we say isolationism, we mean we're talking like modern North Korean levels of hermit kingdomness, right? Japan, just no foreigners coming in except this tiny little pocket. um, And Japanese people can't go out, right? If you're out of the country, when some of these laws were passed, you Japanese people were stuck outside the borders, couldn't come back into the country. Um, so yeah, that, that's the kind of level of isolationism we're talking about here in the 
you know, 1600s, 1700s, and first part of the 1800s. But with the Meiji Restoration, which is the return of actual power to the emperor and the removal of the shogun, Japan decided that it was best to open up to the world before being forced into even more unequal treaties. Um, so the U.S., some other countries like U.K., France, you know, the, the, the major powers at the time, um, they forced the issue in the late 50, 1850s and the eight, early, into the early 18, mid-1860s. And Japan, at this point, very, very rapidly goes through this period of opening up and modern and modernizing. And with this modernization comes the idea that a modern power needs to be a colonial power. Um, so thank you for that, Western world. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not just the Western world. It's, it's a thing that countries all, all over have done. Um, but at this period of time, it's very much a Western thing, this idea of colonialization. Um, and Japan wants to get in on that. And so Japan defeats China in the first Sino-Japanese War of 1894-1895. And the idea of a Japanese empire really begins to gain steam. Large portions of China, they get annexed into the budding empire. Um, and then you have the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, which really announced Japan's imperial intentions to the Western world. So, right, defeating China, another Asian power, um, I mean, through the late, in the late 1800s, China kind of in disarray, not terribly strong um, in historical context. They had been his traditional power in East Asia for, you know, literally thousands of years at that point. And they were in kind of a mess. They weren't as strong as they were. But, you know, anyway, Japan comes along, defeats them in war. But because racism, um, the Western powers didn't really take that much notice, right? It was a cute little war between two Asian countries, more or less, is kind of how I think how a lot of the Western powers saw it. It's like, okay, maybe we'll take note of it, but it's nothing to worry about. It's just, like I say, it's a cute little war. But, you know, defeating Russia, one of the great European powers, I mean, I mean, although, well, let's be honest, in the early 1900s, Russia wasn't really on top of their game either. But, I mean, still, in Japan, they defeated a Western power, right? They really, you know, they're, they're, they're showing up on the world stage in record time. Remember that less than 40 years prior, Japan had been a hermit kingdom, right? With little naval technology or modern weaponry, right? That was one of the things of being a hermit kingdom. We're not going to build boats. Boats mean people can leave the country, can go to other places. We don't want that. So Japan really wasn't in the, the, the shogunal government was not into building boats. But, you know, come 1900, Japan's got some pretty serious naval power, right? And so in these two wars, right, the first Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War, Japan added a lot of colonies and some puppet vassal states, and they decided to do a racism of their own. Um, large parts of China, Taiwan, uh, the Kurile Islands, which is the 
kind of the, if you look at a map, those are the islands that kind of extend north east off the north, like the far off of Hokkaido, um, Korean Peninsula. All of these get pulled into the Japanese Empire. And as the empire expanded, there was increased movement between Japan and its colonies and vassal states. Uh, I mean, personally, I actually know a couple of, at this point, pretty elderly Japanese people, um, but they were born not in Japan, right? One of them was born in Manchuria, uh, kind of northeast China, and one of them was born in Taiwan, right? Because that was part of the empire at the time. And just as Japanese citizens were moving out to the colony and the vassal states, there was an increased movement into Japan from people from these occupied territories because you know that's that's a more uh, that's a more accurate term, right? Occupied territory. I mean, you can say forcibly occupied territory. I mean, that's not inaccurate. Um, so anyway, yeah, the, the people from these occupied territories made their way to Japan. Right, largely in the big cities, as tends to be, you know, the way in these cases. And so Tokyo um, and and Yokohama, right, big cities, they had sizable populations of Koreans and Chinese people in the 1920s. Now, obviously, there are still large portions to this day, um, right? And, and it, actually, many of the ethnic Koreans, ethnic Taiwanese, and Chinese residents of Japan. They are not citizens, despite having been born in Japan, having only ever lived in Japan. Um, why? Um, I think you could argue a lot of it's racism, but that's not today's topic. Um, it is connected to today, today's topic, at least. It, it's at least in part one of the legacies of this whole situation and setting the, that we're talking about. So... Anyway, that is the overly simplified, grossly generalized background to our story. There are literally books and books and books and books written about this very topic. So, now you know, and you are now an expert on East Asian diplomacy. Get at it. No, let's go. Back to our main story for today. And I will say, this is not a fun story. Um, I think in pretty much, well, in, not, in most ways, I think it's a lot worse of a story than the story of the earthquake itself. Um, at least with the earthquake, that was a natural disaster doing the damage. Uh, this is just people being really, really shitty to each other. Um, so let's uh, get into it, I guess. Again, not a happy story. Sorry. So, yeah, the earthquake, right, it strikes on September 1st, 1923. And then there's the horrible fire and all that. Almost immediately, there's a bunch of Koreans who were longshoremen union members. Um, stevedores, I guess you might, I think is the term I've seen it. But stevedore, longshoremen, they're basically, it's it's the same thing as far as I can tell. Um if you are a longshoreman or a stevedore and you know that's that I'm making a mistake, I'm sorry. Um, but I think they're more, I think they're the same thing. Um, but anyway, you have these Koreans or dock workers. And they're in a union that is organized by a pretty far left, um, certainly by the politics of the time and the place, uh, pretty far left wing Japanese guy by the name of Yamaguchi Seiken. 
And so you have the Japanese and Korean union members working together, and they're doing a really good job organizing some aid for some of the victims of the earthquake. Right? They managed to get supplies out of some of the collapsed buildings. Right, They were getting food and water to people in need. And, of course, the cops aren't happy um, because, well, I mean, Ice Cube said it best. Um, if you don't know, look it up, kids, or boomers, look it up, too. Uh, yeah, the police were not happy that these leftists and Koreans are being very, very effective in their relief efforts. And by the end of the night of the first, right, that's the day the earthquake happened, the police are already spreading rumors. The chief of police in Kanagawa Prefecture, which that's uh, Yokohama's prefecture, the, the chief of the prefectural force apparently said there was a certain mission to deal with the emergency situation and left it at that kind of vague level. By the next day, uh, some cops were allegedly giving Japanese citizens resident, uh, they were, they were giving them permission to kill Korean residents. I mean, reportedly. Um, sometimes it sometimes it was with caveats. Um, you know, they were saying it's okay to kill Koreans who resist arrest. Uh, and sometimes it was more, it was reportedly more blunt and direct. Um, kill any Koreans who enter the neighborhood or kill any Koreans you find. Uh, and so by the, you know, that, this, that night, the second, the night of the September 2nd, vigilante groups were organized by the police, allegedly, allegedly, to kill Koreans in the Nogai region of Yokohama. And the police began circulating rumors that Korean residents had been trying to poison wells or they were plotting to burn certain neighborhoods down. And I mean, they were also saying that Koreans were, suppo were supposedly going around and raping Japanese women. And so, not surprisingly, lynch mobs formed. Now, very quickly, I just want to say that all of this stuff was allegedly, right? Allegedly, right? I think most of it probably happened. Um, a lot, I mean, a lot of it was denied and whitewashed and whatever. We'll talk about that later. But with all this, just put a big allegedly in 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 your mind, okay? Um, yeah. So by the second, right, the day after the earthquake, the vid the vigilante groups they're out there in force, roaming the streets of Tokyo and Yokohama, looking for anyone who was Korean and, to a lesser extent, um, Chinese. They, the Chinese were also targeted. Um, people from the Ryukyu Islands, uh, which is the chain that a lot of people know as Okinawa, uh, Okinawa Prefecture. The, the, the name of the island chain is actually Ryukyu. Um, basically, it was anyone who didn't look Japanese was becoming a potential target. Hmm, I've never heard of that thing happening before or after this event, right? 
it's not like Sikhs were ever, you know, targeted for wearing turbans and thought to be Muslims or or people who were, you know, vaguely Asian being attacked over a virus. Nope, those things never, ever, ever, ever happened, right? Yeah. I mean, I know this is a depressing story. Um, This, to me, is one of the most depressing elements of it, right? This is literally the exact same thing we see happen time and time again all over the place, right? People shouldn't be, you know, doing a vigilantism, right, in the first place. But, right, so it's, but you have these people who are doing their vigilante justice when they shouldn't be, right? They were scared of anything that is perceived as different and going after that different thing, right? Even men who were more hirsute were targeted, right? So Kurosawa Akira, right, the famous film director, he was a boy in Tokyo at the time, and he talked about the incident in his 1983 autobiography. And I'm going to quote from his autobiography here. With my own eyes, I saw a mob of adults with contorted faces, rushing like an avalanche and confusing, yelling, confusion, yelling, this way, no, that way. They were chasing a bearded man, thinking someone with so much facial hair could not be Japanese. Simply because my father had a full beard, he was surrounded by a mob carrying clubs. My heart pounded as I looked at my brother, who was with him. Right? They were going after bearded people. Um, I mean, obviously, most Japanese people don't have a lot of facial hair, but there are people who are fully Japanese with beards. Ugh. Anyway, of course, I mean, that, that of course, what Kurosawa said, that's 60 years later, it's eyewitness accounts, yada, 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 right? Maybe not 100% accurate, but given all of the other evidence, it's at least plausible, right? Now, some Koreans looked to the police for help, right? Trying to escape the mobs. But, well, you can guess how well that went. Cops largely did nothing to stop lynch mobs from entering police stations and dragging the Koreans out. And in some cases, the police played a much more active role in aiding the lynch mobs, handing Koreans over to the attackers. And pretty much any Korean person that the vigilantes got their hands on was killed. Right? Now, the police were no help, but the Yakuza did offer protection for the Koreans. So the Yakuza, right, the Japanese mafia, they were social outcasts themselves, and they welcomed Korean residents into their ranks. So even before all this was going on, there were Korean Yakuza members. I mean, there still are to this day. And as such, the Yakuza had a much more vested interest in protecting the Koreans from the lynch mobs. I mean, I'm sure you probably could find some altruism behind the mobsters protecting the Koreans being hunted by lynch mobs. But, right, for whatever reason, the Yakuza, they were a much better option for the Koreans in the week or so after the earthquake, right? So, I mean, even... The thing is, though, even with that small, it's not a positive note, but 
uh, side note, right? The Yakuza helping, right? Whatever, whatever it is that you want to call the Yakuza correct, protecting some Korean residents, even with that amount of protection offered, huge numbers of Korean residents were killed. Now, officially, the government only recognized a couple hundred deaths. Okay. Initially, actually, they only said five. Um, but after a couple of years, I think that was revised up to like 230, 231, somewhere around there. Researchers, however, have since figured that the number was somewhere between six to 10,000. Right. By some accounts, right, something like 50 to 90 percent of Yokohama's Korean population had been killed. Just absolute horror. And while the massacre of the Korean residents of Japan was the worst part of this period right after the earthquake, um, the police and the army, army also used the chaos as an excuse to go after leftists and anarchists. Of course, the excuse was that, oh, those radical leftists and anarchists, they're going to use the crisis as a chance to overthrow the Japanese government, right? Now, again, I mean, just, it's not like there's a huge number of leftists and anarchists in Japan at this time anyway, but right, that didn't matter, right? And, you know, this is another one of those things. Oh, no, this argument has never been used before or since. It's a truly unique moment in history, right? You know, okay, yeah, anyway, perhaps most famously um, with the leftists and the the anarchists and whatnot. So there was a couple who were anarchists and radical feminists. And they were, along with their six-year-old nephew, six-year-old nephew, right? This anarchist feminist couple and their six-year-old nephew were executed They were summarily executed by an officer in the army. So Sakae Otsugi, who he was incidentally Japan's first Esperanto teacher. Just interesting side note. So Sakae Otsugi and Ito Noe were arrested, beaten, and strangled to death. And their bodies were thrown into a well, right, by a very well-known, very prominent military police lieutenant. Uh, by the name of Amakas uh, Masahiko. And said, well, he was at least, he was the leader of the group that, that murdered these three people, one of whom was a six-year-old child. He was tried, convicted, and sentenced to 10 years. He only served three. So, F that guy. Uh, he would later on he would later go on to be a fairly prominent member of the military and serving in World War II and eventually killed himself, you know, when it looked when he when the writing was on the wall for the Japanese army, but eh, F that guy. So about two weeks after the earthquake, everything finally calmed down-ish. And the government had to do something to at least show that there was some attempt at justice, question mark, or something. Uh, A bunch of people were put on trial, but no one got any serious sentences, right? Just slaps on the wrist, really. 
according to newspaper reports, everyone involved in the trial, right? The judges and the defendants were chatting and laughing. And that sounds like a really great, fair, unbiased trial, doesn't it? Now, perversely, but not actually surprisingly, it was the surviving Koreans that they were punished much more severely. So the Korean community in Tokyo, they largely tried to get the heck out of Dodge, for obvious reasons, but the police and the military did not want them fleeing back to Korea to tell their compatriots what had happened. So all Koreans attempting to flee were arrested and forced to do unpaid labor for a couple of months, helping to clean up the city after the earthquake. So newspapers in Korea were kept in the dark about any of this, right? Remember, Korea was a forcibly occupied colony at the time. You know, there was all kinds of hinky stuff going on, covering up the massacre, attempting to whitewash the reality with propaganda, right? There were stories about, oh, no, the police protected Koreans from the riotous mobs. You know, the standard kind of BS when something like this, you know, government-supported death squads targeting one ethnic group, you know, when this kind of thing happens, you know, that that kind of cover-up propaganda. And the whitewashing and denial hasn't stopped, right? Even today, almost 100 years out from the massacre. You know, I'd guess that at this point, the majority of Japanese people aren't really aware of what went down in those days after the 1923 earthquake. I don't want to say it's this, you know, it, it's that similar. It's not the same as the Tulsa mass, massacre in the U.S., but there are some elements that are very similar, right? Including one of the main ones. It's this horrible event that's largely forgotten by the majority of the country. I mean, obviously, it's very well remembered by certain segments of the population, right? The Korean American, the Korean Japanese, not Korean American, this is in, we're talking about Japan here. The Korean Japanese population is well aware of this, right? One big difference is that the Tulsa massacre is now, it's been brought to light to the majority of Americans, I would say at this point. This, the massacre of Koreans in Tokyo and Yokohama has not had anything like that to bring it to the public's attention in a meaningful way, right? And deniers, like, Massacre deniers are apparently gaining popularity, with some of their books becoming bestsellers recently here in Japan, right? And recently, so the governor of Tokyo, uh, Koike Yuriko, she has been on some real all-lives-matter BS. So for a long time, Tokyo governors, including Governor Koike on her in her first year in office, they would send someone, they would send a, an el, a eulogy and someone, a representative, to the yearly memorial service for the Korean victims of the massacre. But in the past few years, she has declined to send a message to the memorial service held specifically for the Korean massacre victims. She has elected instead to only send a message to a service which is held to remember all the victims of the earthquake, Right? All victims matter, I guess, which is just, I mean, that's BS. And, you know, I, I, from what I've seen of her excuses, I mean, they are just complete mealy mouth politician speak. She's either caving 
to the far right wing pressure groups, or she's showing her she's showing her true thoughts as a right wing. Okay. Anyway, yeah, blah. That is the story of the massacre, mostly of Korean residents, but I mean there were other not exclusively, but mostly Korean residents following the 1923 Great Kanto earthquake. A real bummer of a story. One that really, it really shows Japan's warts, to put it mildly. So why do I tell these stories if they're such bummers? Well, I mean, there's the old axiom about, you know, people forgetting history and then repeating it, right? There's, I mean, that, that's a big reason why to tell these stories. You know, fight back against denials of history? Yeah, I mean, we need to do that, right? Because it's not that we're people are, it's not that we're just forgetting history. We're actively trying to rewrite it here. With some, not, not we, I'm not, some people are actively trying to re- rewrite and deny history, right? So that's another part of it. Another element, right? See how similar we all are, right? A lot of the same stuff that happened in Japan in 1923 it's happened in other places in the world, right? Humans all over the world are apparently capable of being really, really shitty to each other, right? Given the right circumstances. And that's something that, you know, strangely, kind of contradictorily connects us, right? Realizing these similarities, hopefully that's another step towards putting differences aside and not having racist massacres anymore. I mean, also non-racist massacres, let's avoid those too, um, let's all be like the Yakuza, at least in this one little tiny way, look out for each other. Um, mobsters are better than lynch mobs. Is that something we can say? I mean, at least in this case, it was true. Um, I mean, in a lot of cases, obviously that's a toss up mobsters or lynch mobs, but yeah, you know, in this one little tiny way, be, be like the Yakuza, um, watch out for each other. Right. And I guess I will leave you with that thought. Be nice to each other out there. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever it is you cast your pods. The podcast is on most major platforms. I think you can find it. Um, They're pretty much everywhere. Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora. It's on Amazon Music Podcasts now. Um, Probably some other places. If it's not on your favorite platform, let me know, and I will look into getting it on that platform as well. You can find the Twitter for the podcast at Just Another Cast. You can email the show at Just Another Jerk Podcast at gmail.com. And you can find all that information. You can find some of the working scripts for the episodes. Um, we're still working on it, but I'm getting, we're improving it over on the website. The website is tinyurl.com slash jerkpod. That's all for me. I'm Jonathan Isaacson, and I'm out. Peace.